BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the RhinoCast podcast brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. RhinoCast listeners, get ready as we pay respect to the Queen of Soul with a new release that is a classic from moment one. Aretha Franklin, A Brand New Me, with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Dennis? Today on the RhinoCast, we've got the ultimate soul stew that takes us from its original home in Memphis to London and back. We're talking about Aretha Franklin, a brand new me with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. This recording features Aretha Franklin's instantly recognizable voice woven together with new orchestral arrangements. The Royal Philharmonic Orchestra recorded the music at Abbey Road Studios in London with brand new backing vocals led by Grammy Award winning singer Patty Austin. Our guest is James Williams, the managing director of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, and he's going to walk us through the steps they took to create this new masterpiece. Would you introduce yourself, please? My name is James Williams. I'm the managing director of the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. And James, what are your duties as managing director? My day-to-day duties at the RPO are very much focused around future planning for the orchestra, strategic planning for the orchestra, and very much around artistic direction as well. So I spend a lot of my time working with our 
conductors and our soloists and indeed members of the orchestra planning artistically what we will play in our concerts in London, in the UK, and indeed internationally. Ah, so you're like the A&R guy for the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Indeed, that's the really exciting part of the job. The less exciting part of the job, of course, is the business side. The Royal Philharmonic Orchestra has a very, very storied past. The orchestra just celebrated its 70th anniversary, actually, in 2016. And it's an orchestra that I admire hugely. It, It really has one of the most diverse programmes of activity of any orchestra in the world. The orchestra's history started back with Sir Thomas Beecham, who was the orchestra's founder, a very famous British conductor in 1946. And he wanted to create the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra, in effect, as a super orchestra of London. This organisation has constantly reinvented itself. Projects such as the one we've done together with this album, A Brand New Me, Aretha Franklin, I think, just kind of demonstrates that this is an orchestra that really is thinking for the future and isn't afraid to kind of break down those boundaries of music that so many people like to put up. How did a brand new me enter your world? Well, it actually entered our world through the two producers of the album, Nick Patrick and Don Reedman, two fantastic men that we've worked with on a couple of other albums. And they came to us with this fantastic concept of taking Aretha Franklin's voice from these iconic songs of hers over the past four decades and remoulding them with a symphony orchestra. And we've done this a couple of times with a couple of albums with Elvis Presley to huge effect, actually. And so we said, well, why not? Let's, let's give it a go and see what we can produce. How did you work in tandem with the producers to set up the sessions and go about the work? We're very, very much in Nick and Don's hands, as well as in the arranger's hands, because everything, of course, is about the quality of the arrangements for the orchestra. And we worked with a fantastic man called Steve Sidwell and a number of other colleagues who created these luxurious and fantastically radiant arrangements that you hear on on the album here. And so I must give most of the credit to them, actually, because they do all that background work and preparation work so that when the orchestra comes into the studio on the day, in effect, the really hard work has already been done. songs didn't always follow the classic pop song signature. So for example, Otis Redding didn't write a bridge into Respect, and that bridge was filled by, you know, King Curtis at the time. So can you Mm. pick one or two other things in the arrangements that when they got to you required that kind of orchestration? The first thing to say is that there needs to be a huge amount of respect, (laughs) for want of a better word, for the original quality of Aretha's music. And I think, you know, the most important thing that Steve, Nick and Don had have achieved here is that they've retained that spirit of the music that I think all people who love Aretha Franklin's music will recognise in this disc. It's called A Brand New Me, in a sense, because it's kind of reimagining, but it's not changing the basic parameters of, of Aretha's music. 
music. So I think everything you hear is about sort of offering a different perspective rather than changing the original. You know, if you have a favourite view, for example, you know, in a scenery somewhere and you see a beautiful hill or mountain and you love that view, of course, if you move to a different place, you still see, in effect, the same mountain, the same hill, the same scene, but from a different perspective. And it would change, but it's still the same thing. And I think that's what we've achieved in this album. And I think a symphony orchestra offers such a broad range of different colours, of different timbre, and it just fits this music absolutely fantastically. Aretha's music had an honest quality to it. And this album goes beyond her in many ways, obviously her vocals, mm-hmm. but you've got Sir Elton John's Borders song. You've got Motown with You're All I Need to Get By. You've got Son of a Preacher Man, Dusty yeah. Springfield. That kind of variety most certainly does keep you honest, but also requires some important decisions. Now, I know that there were the arrangers, and I know that Nick and Don obviously did a lot of their homework and a lot of work prior to Mm. you, but Mm. is there a time in the studio where you were in the middle of, say, a Borders song, and you had to improv? You know, our musicians are constantly improvising, but it's on a very kind of small scale in a sense. They're constantly adjusting. They're constantly needing to interpret what has been put on the piece of sheet music in front of them. And then using their experience, their training, their ears to blend what has been put in a 2D version on a bit of paper with what else is going on around them. And it's interesting when they record this music, the musicians will have headphones on whilst they're recording. And they're special headphones. They have only one covering of one ear. So, of course, the musicians need to hear the rest of the orchestra performing so they can blend and they can interpret what they have on their music with the group. But also they need to understand what it is they're blending with. So they often have the vocal in the, coming across through the headphones and also a click track so that they can keep in time. So the ability to improvise significantly is of course really reduced because there are about 55 musicians within the orchestra on this track and if everybody just went off to go and do their own thing it would obviously be a musical chaos what do you think it is about these songs that lend themselves so well to this reinterpretation you know, I think it's about the strength of melody, I think, through them. All of them have incredibly strong melodic lines. I think also harmonically they're really interesting. I mean, one of my favourite tracks of the entire album is Oh Me Oh My. And I think it's just these gorgeous, luxurious harmonies that are constantly ebbing and flowing and changing on that track. And I think it just lends itself perfectly to the coloration of an orchestra, which is just infinite in terms of what you can do there. And I think to have that as an underscoring for these songs, it just offers a totally new perspective. Since you brought up Oh Me Oh My, let's dive a little deeper into that one. Mm. What are your recollections about working on that track? Oh Me Oh My shows off what we call the Royal Philharmonic sound. And it's that sort of luxuriating strings that you get at the very beginning, the kind of shimmering effect that I think just, again, it provides this, in effect, it's like a feather cushion that the song sits on. And for me, actually, I didn't know this song before coming to this album. So I just remember being in the studio when this started up and it completely knocked me sideways, actually, not because of a power of the music in terms of the volume and the and the beat and the drive it was completely the opposite it was the sense of intimacy and as i say this really tender quality attached to it it matches perfectly the quality of the rpa strings it's my favorite track on the album 
I am certainly curious to know what it was like to work in Studio One, where so much great orchestral music has been recorded. Abbey Road Studios, for those listeners who don't know Abbey Road Studios, if you Google Abbey Road Studios, it looks like a very mundane, small building from the outside, actually. But it's a little bit like uh, Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory when you go in. It just opens up a whole new world in there of large studios, of small editing suites, and it's operational sort of 24 hours a day. It's phenomenal to see what's going on in there. Studio One is the largest studio in Abbey Road. It can fit an orchestra of over 100 people in there, and all of the very, very big Hollywood soundtracks have been recorded in there. Films like Star Wars and Gladiator and films like this, you know, all the really big iconic movies. When the red light is on, the orchestra has to absolutely perform because time is money in those environments. And so whilst it feels a huge privilege to be in there, it is a very pressurized environment for everybody. Doing Let It Be at Abbey Road 1, of course, Phil Spector produced the original Let It Be. Mm. Did you think about that at Mm. all? Mm. Oh, absolutely. When you walk into Abbey Road Studios, there's a huge corridor you have to walk along. And on either side of the corridor are just photograph after photograph after photograph of the largest names in pop, rock, music, classical music, film music, you name it, everybody's been in there. And it's very salutary, actually, when you come in. I constantly think about the number of people who have walked that corridor, who have recorded in those rooms, who've sat in the cafe and had cups of tea in between sessions. I mean, it really is. It's literally the history of music is within that building. And it is very, very touching, actually, to be in there. Nick Patrick and Don Reedman discovered that there weren't multi-track tapes of many of these sessions. And, and that mm. made the building of the new versions interesting, to say the least. One example mm. is I Say a Little Prayer, which has some really interesting fluctuations in the chorus and the verses. So take me mm. through a little bit about what you did when it got to the orchestra with the new rhythm tracks. It's fascinating, isn't it, how technology today has advanced so significantly that when you look 
back at the technology that was used at the time of recording, as you say, multi-tracks, etc., it seems unbelievably archaic. Look, I mean, the orchestra would have played this, I say a little prayer, on a click track there. So they would have had a pulse like this that would just go through their headphones, which allows the orchestra to keep absolutely in time with the rhythm section and then positioning it to the original song. So the conductor is there to be able just to control the ebb and flow where necessary. And of course, the conductor, Steve Sidwell, worked in advance of this on the arrangements. He knew absolutely where those little corners were, that he just needed to hold the orchestra a bit or just needed to take the orchestra forward a bit. And so was able to adjust that ebb and flow so that everybody would play together. So on Think, James, you've got that classic piano riff, right? Mm -hmm. That's a pounding riff. Then it comes in again. And then it comes in a third time. And then finally it goes bum, 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 bum. And so that becomes a place where an orchestra can either fill, you know, as we described earlier on, you know, on the other track, or it can innovate And you describe this as truly stripping down the album and making it a brand new album. Well, look, I mean, these are, again, the key choices that the arrangers have made actually before the orchestra comes in. And and you're absolutely right. There are so many different directions that one can go on here. I mean, it's interesting that Think's the first track of the album. And of course, it's positioned very well because it makes a huge impact, as you say, at that very beginning. And I think it's a great track for showing the impact the orchestra can have alongside this music. thousand different choices that the arrangers have to make on every track that they produce and again you know the auction is like a giant sweet shop and one needs to be really careful with how you use it it's so easy to over sweeten certain areas it's very easy to sour certain areas as well and of course the real challenge is how you create that balance that then sits with the integrity of the music i think it's a great track to start off with i think it's got all the dna for the rest of the album in there like you said, time is money in the studio. How many takes on average would it require to get the take that you liked? There is no rehearsal for an album like this. So the first time that our musicians see the music is when they're sat down in Studio One in Abbey Road and the red light goes on. Interesting. Uh, so there is, 
yeah, there's a massive, massive pressure on the individual musicians, on the conductor, on the arrangers to make sure that there are no mistakes in the parts. Because if there are suddenly mistakes in the parts or someone's printed them at the wrong pitch or, or whatever, that costs money because you've only got the orchestra for a certain level of time. So these things are put together very, very quickly indeed. That's why we need the top team associated with this. And people like Don and Nick are able to manage the time perfectly. So the album was recorded in about two days with the main orchestra. That's amazing. Can I tell you something? You're really, really blowing your cover here, James. (laughs) (laughs) You're blowing your cover. I mean, most rock bands brag that they did a track a day. They brag about that. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, no rehearsals. You know, this is something particularly that London orchestras are very, very famous for around the world. This is why we record so much movie music and video game music here in London. Of course, we have iconic studios. We have fabulous producers and engineers. You know, a lot of this recording work, particularly for movies and video games, comes in very, very late in the production process. And so companies and composers need orchestras to record this extremely fast. And London orchestras are very famous for being able to sight read. So walk into the studio and just read the music. So we'll do probably two or three different takes for each track. There would be certain sections that producers would ask the orchestra to play, so they would separate out certain instruments for this. And of course, I should say as well, the rhythm section was recorded separately. So we recorded the orchestra separately, and then the rhythm section was recorded separately. And then the producers did their bit to stitch it all together. A Brand New Me pays tribute to the original But it also introduces it to a brand new audience, not to mention giving that new audience access to real instruments beyond a synthesizer. And on behalf of the Royal Philharmonic, you must be pleased that you get to do that. Absolutely. I mean, we're so proud at the RPO of this album and any opportunity for a new audience to hear an orchestra in whatever context it is, whether it's with a live film or whether it's on an album such as this or whether it's in a concert hall playing Beethoven. You know, it's really important for us to inspire future generations to love orchestral music and to feel that it has a relevance for them in their lives. And I think, you know, this album not only, I think, is attractive to those who love Aretha Franklin and buy every album of hers, but I think it gives an opportunity for a totally new audience and a younger audience who perhaps just didn't grow up with Aretha Franklin's music in the way that we did to really explore this extraordinary artist's music and sound world. That to me is a great gift and it's wonderful. James Williams, thank you so much for your time today. We've appreciated talking with you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've enjoyed it greatly. This is my same old coat. These are my same old shoes. It was the same old me with the same old blues. But then you touched my life just by holding my hand. When I look in the mirror. Howdy, buckaroos. Circle the wagons and sound the alarm. It's time for the Rhino Roundup. 
Hi, it's John Hughes from Rhino, and joining me today is the keyboardist and sometime vocalist of one of synthpop's most enduring bands, Book of Love, a band that is also celebrating the 30th anniversary of their classic sophomore album, Lullaby. I am proud to welcome to the podcast Book of Love's Ted Ottaviano. Hi, John. How are you? I'm great. How's it going? And you're in New York today? I'm in Brooklyn, yes, holding down in Brooklyn over here. Nice. So tell me a little bit about Lullaby. It's 30 years old this year, and you guys worked with Flood on that album as the producer, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it, it was kind of a whirlwind, that album, for us. And um, we almost, it was such a whirlwind because we were on tour, touring our first album for almost two years. We, we did the two Depeche Mode tours, and then we were out on our own solo tour that we had that classic South Morick album situation where we were thrown back in a studio and, and needing to write songs for a second album. And so the whole thing took probably the writing and the recording and the mixing was just one solid year. And um, we ended up working with Flood. And because of the fact that we were so exposed to so many new things with the release of the first album, we were just gangbusters with concepts and 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 ideas that we were trying to achieve for the for the second album and he was just always so game to sort of reach any of our goals so we did some pretty pretty interesting sort of recording uh, uh techniques and and recorded in sort of various ways that we had never before all based on his knowledge and his it's just amazing, like enthusiasm. And it, it was a bit of a leap forward because you guys had an orchestra, you had a, a chamber music, or what? What would you call that? Well, I mean, there, there's just a number of different tracks that each track, like sort of like we were trying to achieve something different musically, and so we did do a number of different things. I mean, for for lullaby, we actually had. A, a full like it was almost like 30 to 40 piece like orchestra that we recorded for lullaby um in addition to a bagpipe player i mean any anything that we were sort of interested in trying we sort of made happen but sort of the centerpiece for kind of like a lot of the, the recording was the fact that we went to st john's the divine chapel which is in upper the upper west side of manhattan it's actually like known to be largest in square feet cathedral in the world like it's it's an amazing structure and we recorded the cathedral organ for this track with a little love and we it was just it was just amazing i mean you know we had the the cathedral all to ourselves and from I think it was six p.m. to six in the morning, huh. and we just overnight were were recorded that track, as well as like I mean we were on the organ like playing whole lot of love Led Zeppelin. I mean we were just kind of like <laughs> taking advantage of the <laughs> time. I guess taking advantage of the fact that like this is a once in a lifetime moment here, and um, so it, you know we think so fondly of Flood, and the thing that was kind of almost our favorite memory is that because he had so so many experiences himself um he's english and he so he had so many experiences working in in europe on various recordings that he took us to hansa ton studios in berlin to mix the album oh, and, and you're a huge bowie fan i bet you love that like you are yes uh, yes i am and uh uh oh my god i mean it was like you could just 
it was just thick. The studio was just thick in atmosphere. And, um, you know, it, it, it remains a highlight for the four of us. Well, obviously it paid off because it was your highest charting album at the time. And it also had your first Hot 100 chart hit, an MTV hit with Pretty Boys and Pretty Girls. And, you know, I, I think you guys don't get enough credit. That was one of the first songs to really tackle the AIDS crisis. Yeah, I mean, what happened is that, I mean, we, I mean, we live in New York City and it's, you know, we don't have to say how hard hit you know, New York and, and, and San Francisco were initially, you know, w- w- with the AIDS crisis. And it was it was probably like the like the mid 80s. So we were on tour when we got back to New York, like uh, in 87 um it was you could really feel the fallout that was happening from this epidemic and it really was coming hitting close to home for for us like many of our friends and 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 our peers were had had been hard hit by it so we felt there was it was just there was no way to not to not address it and that's the way that we do it you know we do it with our music and so i mean it always had kind of like a double a two jag sort of feel that song on Mm -hmm. one level it's 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 very melodic and very upbeat but then there's a there's a subdued undertone to the whole thing as well so you can read it however with what, what whatever rorschach (laughs) <laughs> test you want <laughs> well it's very much like i would say like abba you have this really catchy danceable tune with this underlying sense of melancholy to it and it was such a huge dance hit and i remember it being a dance hit with the mix of tubular bells interpolated at the beginning how did that idea come about um well i, I want to talk about that but i have to mention the fact that you, that you mentioned abba and and the abba melancholy which i'm not sure if many ABBA fans like here, but that's exactly what I hear when I hear ABBA records. I hear mm-hmm. this dichotomy of this like sort of real upbeat, uh, like infectious pop music, but uh, like a melancholy underpinning to it. I think that really is what Book of Love's sound has always had as well. And the people who've stayed with us over the years are the people who really get that message from our music. So it's nice that you mentioned that. And um, Tubular Bells, uh, Tubular Bells, we were were in the studio. It was like, I think it was Jade and I were downstairs waiting for the rest of the bands to show up. And we just started fooling around. Uh, And we started with the bass line of Pretty Boys. We just started playing Tubular Bells on top of it. And then Lauren came down and she did her best Linda Blair impression. And then Susan came down and she was like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and um, it just, in a weird way, it didn't make any sense, but it just made perfect sense. They, those two tracks kind of hand, held hands together nicely. And it wasn't really almost the concept that held them together. It was kind of the process, like the musical process. And, and sometimes I, you just don't know why something like that works. And sometimes when you try it and it doesn't work, you also don't know why it doesn't work. And for some reason, these two kind of worked well together. And as a result, like that, it was kind of our first 
it was it was almost a double a side that single yeah, it was I a mean, monster and, on the dance floor exactly and uh uh, many people did did edits of it and edited it together, so it was like a piece. So, it, like it was like a s- total eight minute piece that basically has been kind of like re-edited in so many different forms with different combinations of those two songs put together. And I still love those two together. I like what we're doing for for our show coming up. We're doing a spruced up version of the two of them. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, let's talk about that. How is Book of Love celebrating Lullaby's 30th? We just went back to it and we really kind of were doing almost the entire album, which we haven't really performed many of those songs over the years. Like we just kind of, since we've been going out and doing our, our 30th anniversary thing for the last few years, I mean, it sort of boils down sometimes to the most well-known songs, and, and those end up being like the things that were released as singles or dance singles. But um, for this for this record, I mean, obviously people are coming to a Book of Love show. There's a good chance you're going to hear "Boy and I Touch Roses," whether it's a lullaby, <laughs> you know, um, uh, event or not. Like we're we're going to play like you know the like our our best known songs, but we wanted to also you know turn the light on just this specific album and um and perform things that we haven't in years and we've been doing them in rehearsal now for the last month and they sound great i I mean i'm almost feeling that we're going to add some of them back in in the set like you know they they actually have a really nice feel to them so um it's been a nice surprise great and and alongside the 30th for lullaby you guys have a new compilation out this year as well yeah like it's a it's a hard copy and um uh this version is a cd compilation and uh what what is different between this one and the digital one that we did the previous year is that um the 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 label and basically put together a a combination of tracks that they felt fans had been asking for from doing their research of online and seeing you seeing things that they they had noticed that people had mentioned and so it's a slightly different um uh collection from us and so there's some things on there that are that we haven't like uh re-released up to this point it's nice to hear that because they've they've all been nicely polished and remastered so that's called the sire years it's called uh book of love the sire years 1986 to 1993 which is basically the the our tenure at sire records and people could pick that up at any of the uh upcoming shows and amazon or wherever they buy amazon like mainly yeah great all right well thank you for joining us today ted and, and best of luck with the shows coming up absolutely awesome Thanks very much for tuning in to the Aretha Franklin, A Brand New Me Rhinocast. You can check this album out at your favorite streaming service. 
And once you're hooked, pick up a hard copy over at Amazon.com. Stream what you like, buy what you love. And last but certainly not least, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you don't miss the next RhinoCast. Executive producers for Rhino, John Hughes and Lauren Goldberg. Produced for Rhino by Pop Colt and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved.